My life is really um, complex. There are things about me that you wouldn't understand. Now playing's Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Part of the Now Playing DC Comics Movie Series. Ah, uh, gives a fella a good feeling to know they're up there doing their job. With our all-star hosts, Jacob the Dark Knight. I am not a human being! I am an animal! Cold-blooded! Stuart, the boy reviewer. You can't know to grow like me. And the clown prince of podcasting, Arnie. Sickos never scare me. At least they're committed. Each week at NowPlayingPodcast.com, we'll be watching another Batman film, ending with a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. Now, the real game begins. What are you protecting me from? Have you ever danced with a spoiler in the pale moonlight? This podcast will contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. What do you suppose something like this does to a kid? Listener discretion is advised. Enough monkey business. We've got work to do. <sighs> monkey work. And here we go. Today we're discussing Batman Returns, starring Michael Keaton, getting top billing finally, Danny DeVito, Michelle Pfeiffer, Christopher Walken, and directed by Tim Burton. I'm Arnie, and I am not a human being. I am a podcaster. (laughs) Stuart in LA. And this is Jacob. I was the number one podcasting host, but you treat me like number two. And we have returned with Batman to discuss the second film in the Burton Batman saga. And final. Yeah, they barely got these guys back. Back in the day, they didn't always sign people to multi-movie contracts. Keaton wasn't signed up for another one. Burton wasn't signed up for another one. So even though that movie was the phenomenal hit of 1989, there was no guarantee you were going to get them again in 1992 when they pulled this one together. It's funny, in all the making of stuff, So much of it was done with the benefit of distance. In 88, when making the first one, Burton and his crew were just off in England, kind of doing whatever they wanted. The studios would every so often send down a mandate, but it was whatever it was. The words franchise and sequel were never uttered. They were just making a movie. And the differences between then and now, both for the crew and the studios and their view of what Batman should be. This was a totally different production, and they had the clout. They moved it overseas, filmed in L.A., because Burton and Keaton didn't feel like being away from home as long. And even though he was drawing a check, 
Nicholson's not back. Was that a surprise for you guys? I mean, Joker looms so large over Batman, it was hard to imagine what the movie would be without him in it. But he, although he gets royalties from it, no Nicholson, plus no Vicky Vale, no Robert Wall, no Billy D. Williams even. They really cut a lot of them out. It's funny, the pre-production stuff you read, because Billy D. Williams was in the second-to-last draft in the Max Shrek role that Christopher Walken would play. So he's going to play a different character? No, no. They would have rewritten this so that the human villain would have been Dent. And yeah, Dent was working within City Hall to bring in the power plant rather than it being this department store tycoon. And they didn't bring back Wool. I don't think that was ever in the cards. Nicholson not coming back was never a surprise to me because as soon as Batman was out, you know, it ended with Joker being dead. At this point, movies weren't doing the soap opera thing of, you thought I was dead, but I am not. And all the newspapers were talking about in 89 was, who should play Riddler? Robin Williams. Who should play Penguin? Danny DeVito. They were saying that in 89, and so I just expected them to move down the rogues gallery, just like the Batman episodes did, every week a new villain. I was shocked they had two. Yeah, I agree with you. There were so many other colorful characters to explore, but Nicholson was the dominant star of the last movie, and pity the person that would have to follow in his footsteps. And the cast kept changing again up to that last draft. You know, this was going to feature Robin. Yes, Marlon Wayans, believe it or not, from In Living Color, the future star of White Chicks and... <laughs> Requiem for a Dream. Oh, yes. But what was that horrible thing where he was the baby? Little Man. <laughs> Little Man. <laughs> I just got to say, the world was so different before the internet. Could you imagine these rumors going around if the internet existed? Jacob, here's the thing. This wasn't a rumor. You think it's surprising that Jack Nicholson got paid for Batman Returns and Batman Forever? Marlon Wayans gets checks for Batman Returns and Batman Forever. (laughs) Why can't I get a check for these movies? They're giving them out to everyone. (laughs) He was cast. He was costumed. He was going to be a minor character in this one that at the end would appear in the Robin costume set up for part three. And then at the end, they're like, yeah, we have too many characters. Cut, 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 cut. Again, the studio now had a franchise mentality. They said, we'll save Robin for the next one. Marlon, you're signed. We're paying you. I love these pay or play deals in Hollywood. So yes, Marlon Wayans still gets residual checks. I bought the Blu-ray set for this. Marlon, you're welcome for that quarter. (laughs) We talked about the hype with Batman 89. Now, this was three years later. I don't remember the hype. I don't remember getting caught up. Was there all the hype when this came out? There was, and I was swept away. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you were. And because I had been burned the last time and really felt like I had been tricked into buying things or or something that wasn't nearly as good as I had hoped, I had the anti-hype. I didn't want to see this movie. I didn't want to like this movie. And I didn't want you to like this movie, Arnie. This was 92, the summer after my senior year of high school. I didn't quite know where I was going, didn't know what I was going to major in. I needed something to latch on to that summer, and damn it, it was going to be Batman. I didn't get caught up in the 89 hype. I was going to make up for it in 92. I was buying toys. I was <laughs> buying comics. I was reading the Robin series, which was actually very good. I picked up a compilation that they were selling to tie into the movie with Penguin and Catwoman. Now, here's a funny story, though. Stuart wouldn't go to the movie with me, and I really wanted him to. 
And I was working a job. I said, Stuart, I'll buy you a ticket. He's like, no, I won't do it. I will only go if you can get me a free ticket. I'm like, well, I'll buy it. No, it has to be completely free for you, too. I didn't want them to make any more money. (laughs) This is where I was going. (laughs) You got to, like, sneak into the film if you're going to go see this. Yeah. Well, it just so happened I found a way around his bluff. They were giving out free tickets at McDonald's one Saturday morning. (laughs) I got there at 5 a.m., sat there eating a McMuffin and drinking a (laughs) Coke. Guess who was third in line for tickets? Guess who was pissed? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, my hands were folded as I walked into that theater. No way I was going to enjoy it. Like I said, I really had just felt burned. And, you know, a couple years into it, I was more cynical just about Hollywood and hype in general. I didn't want to like big movies. I was into more auteuristic films, art films. This wasn't the kind of movie I wanted to see at this point. And I thought it split the difference because I'd been getting into more artsy and independent films, especially thanks to Twin Peaks. You know, Twin Peaks opened a door for me and I was really getting into that kind of thing. But Tim Burton straddled the line for me and I loved Edward Scissorhands and I'd gone back and my love for Batman had grown. And so I thought this was going to be the end all be all. And I have to say... 20-some years later now, I still have an outgrown hype. This is why we have now playing, right? (laughs) No, indeed. Despite me not remembering the hype, I did see this opening weekend, and it was a different experience than Batman 89. I'll just say it that. Okay, well, let's get into the plot of it then, Arnie. It's been a while since Batman freed Gotham City from the clutches of crime, but Bruce Wayne, now broken up with Vicki Vale, still patrols the streets of Gotham nightly. Lately, Batman has been fighting off the Red Triangle Circus Gang who are terrorizing Gotham, and despite his best efforts, Batman cannot rid the city of them. But Gotham City seemingly has a new savior when, during the lighting of a Christmas tree, one of the circus gang steals a baby and escapes into the sewers, but the baby is then rescued by the Penguin, a deformed man whose parents had abandoned him to the Gotham sewers 33 years earlier. In truth, Penguin is the leader of the circus gang, and he's enacting a plot for revenge. Though his parents are dead, Penguin, real name Oswald Cobblepot, wants to enact revenge on all of Gotham by killing the eldest son of every family. But while Penguin plots, Gotham department store owner Max Shrek sees an opportunity. He has been wanting to build a new power plant in Gotham City, but citing a power surplus, the newly elected mayor's been refusing Shrek's plans. Of course, Shrek doesn't really want a power plant, but a plant that will siphon power off Gotham's grid and store it, somehow ensuring Shrek's son, Chip, will be set for life. Well, with Penguin's newfound media attention, Shrek prepares a scheme where the Penguin will run for mayor in a recall election, creating a short, squat figurehead in Gotham's government. But when Shrek's plans are discovered by his secretary, Selina Kyle, Shrek pushes Kyle out his office window, seemingly to her death. But the woman lives, now psychologically broken, and the mousy woman goes home and sews up a rubber suit and starts to patrol Gotham streets as the Catwoman, stopping rapists while also terrorizing Shrek by blowing up his department store. And now, more outgoing in her daily life, Selina gets the notice of Bruce Wayne and the two begin dating. Batman gets in a fight with Catwoman, so Catwoman and Penguin team up to frame Batman for the murder of the Ice Princess who lights Gotham's Christmas tree, but Batman exposes the Penguin's machinations and his run for mayor is ruined. 
So Penguin returns to his plan to kill Gotham's firstborn sons, and when trying to kidnap Chip, Max's oldest son, Shrek offers himself as an alternative hostage, so Penguin takes him instead. Meanwhile, Selina plots to assassinate Shrek, and it all comes to a head at Shrek's Christmas party. Penguin's plan to steal the sons is thwarted by Batman, so Penguin launches an army of rocket-wielding penguins to kill 100,000 residents of Gotham. Batman takes the Batboat into the sewer, rerouting the penguins back to headquarters, and when Penguin tries to interfere, his army launch their rockets, accidentally killing their master. Batman then enters the sewers to save Max, but Selina is there to kill him. Despite Batman's best efforts, Selina succeeds in electrocuting Shrek, seemingly killing herself in the process. But as the film ends, the bat signal lights, and we see Catwoman raising to respond. So I had some conflicted timeline memories of this, because I knew I was on summer vacation in Tahoe, but I remember this being a Christmas film, and it is! It takes place (laughs) at Christmas! But it came out in, what, June, July? Was this supposed to come out six months earlier, six months later? What's going on? Batman always comes out in June. They are superstitious about dates. If a movie comes out and is an excess at a certain time of year, they're going to keep putting it out at that time of year. Batman comes out in late June, and this one was scheduled for late June, no matter when the time period within the film is set. And as for why it takes place at Christmas, well, after the massive success of the first film, outgrossing the sequels that everybody had hung their hats on in 89... I think Burton this time was able to do whatever he wanted. They wanted Burton back. Burton wasn't sure if he wanted to do it, but when he did it, he had complete creative control. Nobody was telling him anything. Notice the soundtrack here, or lack thereof. It's gone from all Prince all the time to a single Susie and the Banshees song, and Burton actually likes Susie and the Banshees. As do I. It was a good choice for Catwoman. So here, moving the production to L.A., I think this was Burton's choice, and look at the movies he's making around this time. Edward Scissorhands, a movie caked in snow. Nightmare Before Christmas, it would come out two years later, but stop motion takes a long time to do. He was in heavy production of Nightmare Before Christmas around this time. It seems to me like, I'm going to just put it out here right here in the beginning, Burton, I think his peak was Batman, or maybe Edward Scissorhands, but after Edward Scissorhands, the man seems to repeat himself a lot. And this is the first time where I'm like, yeah, it's like they had the Edward Scissorhands sets and put Batman in them. Well, you're not wrong, but I also think in having so much power, he can hone his satirical sights as well. You know, I mentioned last time, one of the things I really loved was when Joker savaged people for greed, throwing out money and then gassing them to death or tainting their luxury items. Well, I think he takes that a step further here. What's our most commercially charged holiday? Christmas. That is a big target at this time. He wants to attack people for the commerce of Christmas. He does it in Nightmare Before Christmas, and he does it here. It just seems weird. Yes, I'm going to attack commerce on one of the most commercially successful films. Not just for the film, but this is all about the toys. I remember the toys just as much as the films here. It's this weird mixture you get with Hollywood when you try to get too preachy, but you're also putting out something that has to turn out toys and t-shirts and all that kind of stuff. Well, it is the uncomfortable balance between art and commerce, and it was something that Burton wanted to address the last time when he was talking about art. And yeah, with having more control, is he being subversive here? Is he taking something that is meant to be mass marketed and giving it a sharp edge? I actually think so. This movie feels much more wicked than the last movie and much more him. By the same token, I think 
he's off making his movie and Again, in a lot of the supplemental materials, he talks about how toy makers are coming to him and meeting with him. And he's basically like, I'm not going to help you. I don't know what it looks like because I don't know myself. I can't tell you what it's going to look like when I don't know. I need to go make my movie now. So all of the toys and things, that's the studio in clash with its director, not in tandem with it. And that's going to bite the studio in the butt (laughs) hard. I'm sure we're going to talk about the tone of this film, but McDonald's had Happy Meal toys for this, that there was backlash and they had to pull because this film was deemed inappropriate. Well, it does start off with Pee Wee Herman. And this was post-masturbation Pee Wee, right? <laughs> it was. It was around the time of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, too. Hey, it's I, not I, just Pee Wee. It's Simone. Yeah. I like to think of this as like part of the Pee Wee universe, this Burton universe where they're all connected. And this is what happened after Pee Wee. He hooked back up with Simone. He dropped Dottie. They had the penguin. <laughs> Yeah, this opening feels... You guys know the artist Edward Gorey? He's an illustrator. He does very ghastly gothic children's stories, always about children being killed. And this whole opening, this prologue, it's set at the holidays. It's about a rich couple. They have a baby, and they end up having to put it behind bars and then throwing it in a river. I mean, it's so weird and twisted, and it's straight out of Edward Gorey. I just love it, and I'm sure Burton loves Gorey, too. It it feels like a great homage to it and really sets the tone for whether you're going to like this or not. We don't start with the origins of who's Batman. We're starting with the origins of Penguin. Once again, this is not a Batman film. This is Penguin or Catwoman, just like the last film was Joker. What I liked about the origins here of Penguin, because it's very different than the comic, is that it's got this Moses vibe to me. It's the babe being put in the reed basket, sent down the river. Later on, we get the plague that's going to kill the oldest child of each family. Like, it's this twisted biblical story in some ways, which I do like. Leave it up to Burton to do that. That's what I mean. He's subverting a Christian holiday. He's working with Christian metaphor, but he's doing so in a satirical fashion. I'm liking this opening because it is Burton to me. And coming in as a Burton fan, this scene felt far more Beetlejuice, far more Edward Scissorhands than it felt Batman 1. And I was going with it for this opening, but by the same token, do you guys agree with me, this movie, and maybe it's because it was made in L.A. and just didn't have Pinewood Studios there, but it just feels like we're in a different Gotham City, a smaller Gotham City, and it never has the grandeur of the last one. When you get the Christmas tree lighting, it's what, like 50 people there? It doesn't seem like that big city. It seems like it's shot in a lot of back lots and small corners and everything's very crammed. There doesn't seem to be the space that the first Gotham City had. Well, it should be said the original art director killed himself. Anton first won an Oscar for his work in Batman. He was not around to work on Batman Returns, so it is going to look different just because there is a different creative force happening here. But I I don't know. I actually think this movie looks better. I think the sets are more grand. I mean, we have giant statues now. We have larger frames. You know, when we see the Shrek department store, it's not just a couple floors. I mean, it is a tower straight out of Metropolis here with the Felix the Cat head spinning around. I really dig the art direction. I think that Burton has more influence, and I think he's working on a grander scale. But yes, is it different than the last movie? Yes, it feels more cartoony now and i'm not gonna say i dislike it it's still gorgeous but it's just so different and yeah i agree with what jacob said about the lack of people at the christmas tree lighting it's weird because when they do pan back to show gotham city in a wide angle for that christmas tree it's like 
I can see the walls of the studio around them and like they painted buildings on them. That's what it feels like. It feels like I'm seeing a Christmas tree, not surrounded by buildings, but surrounded by walls. I'm not sure there's any more people here than there was at the parade scene. It felt like less people to me than the parade scene. It felt about on par with Joker's The Pen is Mightier Than the Sword scene. (laughs) But yeah, I just right away, I noticed a different tone to this movie overall. And yes, we start with the penguin going down the sewer, and then we jump to, I guess, the real villain of the movie, Max Shrek? Definitely. If the last theme was both bad guy and good guy are the same thing, and this one, the real bad guy are the humans, and the cool people are the freaks. It's Burton's aesthetic all over this. And yeah, the bad guy is the department store owner, Max Shrek. Okay, so he is a department store owner, right? Yeah. That is, yes, correct. (laughs) Because when they get in this plot about a power plant, I don't know. I don't see like Sam Walton trying to build power plants. He, He seemed pretty content with just having the biggest retail stores out there. I don't understand this plot at all. Max was very forward thinking and realized retail would be killed by the internet and needed a backup plan. By sucking energy away? I have no clue what the hell the plan is. Was the plan that he would suck power that he would then resell? Or was it just... I I don't know what his plan was. And we spend, like, what, half the film based around him getting his power plant, which just goes away finally. Like, they spend a lot of time on this subplot. I do think it would be more coherent if they had Billy D working in City Hall to get the power plant, if that was the plot they wanted to go. But I do think the target is commerce, and I think they wanted to make the department store guy that sells us all our Christmas presents the real villain here, the Scrooge, if you would. And Max Shrek, the name, you know, Shrek now means Green Ogre, but back then, you might know him as a silent film star from Nosferatu. If you saw the old 1921 black and white vampire movie, that vampire was played by Max Schreck, and I think that's Tim Burton's homage of paying tribute to, yes, German expressionism, and creating the idea that this guy is a vampire sucking power away from Gotham City. And he has lines like, you can never have too much power, which play in later when he gets electrocuted. But I just don't think that having a department store entrepreneur wanting to go into the power business, given that neither the department store nor the power plant really factor into this movie at all, you could have changed one or the other. You could have him be an industrialist wanting a power plant, or you could have him be a department store owner who has this grand plot about, I don't know, putting more salt in food so he can sell more soda. You know, something nefarious. But to have these two disparate elements come together in a way that's never rectified, it's a head-scratcher. And, of course, he's being played by Christopher Walken, who is an actor I have always loved from childhood. Dead Zone, Brainstorm, Communion, his little bit in Annie Hall, Deer Hunter. He's always creeped me out, and I've always been oddly compelled by this actor. But when I saw this movie originally with you, Arnie, I didn't get the wig, and I didn't get the performance. It's a very strange choice having Walken be the bad guy in this way. I'm right there with you. I loved him going into this movie. View to a Kill is one you didn't mention that I loved him in. Seeing him here, why do you get Christopher Walken for this role? Is it just because Jack Nicholson last time left such a long shadow, you need someone equally hammy? 
He's not hammy. That's the problem here. He doesn't play Walken here. Like, what we all come to think when we think of Christopher Walken, this is not him. This is someone different. I think it's Christopher Walken, but Christopher Walken, he's like William Shatner deadpanning, in a way. I mean, if if you could take what Shatner does with line delivery and then tamp it down so there's no emotion in it, that's what I think of what Christopher Walken does. And sometimes that's like a weird zombie thing that I dig. But here, you know what he is to me? He is the perfect opposite to the way Keaton is playing Wayne. He is the evil Bruce Wayne here, and it's Wayne versus Shrek. That's one of the battles they pit here. To me, I just took it as Walken is phoning it in. There's people around him in latex suits. He's in a fright wig. (laughs) I really just got that he's just going to come and deliver the lines the way Christopher Walken would. And that's the best Christopher Walken impression I can do. And that's all I got out of him. I was never compelled by his performance in this. And I, in my notes, never put Max Shrek. I always put Christopher Walken because he never made a character for me. Yeah, I feel like this is an odd casting choice. And one forced on Burton. You said he made all the choices here, but he didn't want Walken. I don't know how he wound up with Walken, but there it is. I think it's to the detriment of the movie. I kind of would have liked to have seen Billy D in this part, frankly. I think it would have made more sense. Again, if you're going to change that role, you need to change that plot, especially since it's not like, well, we've already built the power plant set, so we have to incorporate a power plant. They had a miniature. They took it off a train set. They could have gotten a different thing. That said, I do love the fact that his son, Chip, has the exact same hair in blonde. <laughs> <laughs> Chip is such a non-entity in this film, though. He's got a scene at the beginning, a scene at the end. I forget Chip exists. Yes, I agree. It's strange that we focus so much around Shrek and that the villains are all united and tied to each other through Shrek. But ultimately, Shrek is not working for me as a threat. He's a plot device, but not a credible villain. And yet, he's the mastermind that does cause all the chaos that occurs. The Penguin would have caused chaos on his own, but Christopher Walken magnifies it. Right. He's the one that suggests he runs for mayor because after he deals with Wayne and realizes that Wayne is going to tell the current mayor not to work and make the power plant, then he's going to just fix the problem by making someone that he can control in that seat. And that's going to be Penguin. And Penguin is introduced early in the film as well with the, all right, Red Triangle Circus Gang. Did anyone see triangles on them? They first call him out as the Circus Gang and then throw out the Red Triangle Gang later. Yeah, I I don't know if he had multiple gangs. It was confusing. I do love this gang. It has one of my favorite character actors in it, the organ grinder, Vincent Chiavelli. Yes. I love this guy. I know him from Better Off Dead, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. And what an entrance. I mean, he comes out turning the little organ grinder crank. It's a machine gun that (laughs) mows down the Christmas tree. Again, this is the dark, the gritty. We said this is the movie that pissed off McDonald's and Happy Meals. But yet it's a circus game. This is not the dark, gritty 90s Batman that we all think we saw. This is a bloodier, cruder version of Adam West. I agree with you, because this was very much, again, Batman 66. Although I was glad to see that they were actual circus performers and guys in paper mache skeleton heads, and they didn't just have sequin jackets. Still, I remember sitting there in the theater, even at 15, I'm like, this doesn't seem dark to me. This just seems weird. Having a guy with a big paper mache skeleton head on a motorcycle. Like, it's kind of cool looking, but this is definitely not the bill of goods I was sold. 
I'll admit that when I saw this in 92, I was confused. There's a lot of characters going on in this, and I wasn't sure who these guys related to who, and even midway through the movie, I was still just not piecing together all the players and their relationships to each other correctly. It seemed to me when I was watching it in 92 that it was just an opening action scene so we can be reintroduced to Batman and he can kick some ass. And when we're reintroduced to him, they set up the bat signal because the circus gang is interrupting the Christmas tree lighting. And we don't see Batman first. We see Bruce Wayne first. Yes, here we go with the passive Batman again. Batman's not on patrol. He's like, what is he doing? In that Rodan thinker pose until the light hits him. He's just sitting. He is literally waiting around, skulking for the bat signal to go off. He has nothing to do. He's not even watching TV. No, there's no book. There's no radio. He's in a dark room looking pensive. And then the light comes. Now, I love the shot of him heeding the call and standing in front of the light. It's as pretty and as useless as the bat plane in front of the moon. But and it was used in the trailer. You know, it's a great shorthand for showing you Keaton's back. But, yeah, it just... <laughs> If you just put a book in his hand, it would have made it so less pathetic. I think it's telling. I tried to keep track of this, and I'm pretty sure he does not speak for the first 33 minutes of the movie. Keaton plays it differently here. I don't like the Bruce Wayne as much here. I think he does a little bit better as Batman. But yeah, again, Batman is a non-entity in this Batman film. Batman returns, but just a little bit. It's mostly about the bad guys. See, I like Bruce Wayne better this time, and when he's telling Max Shrek where he can shove his power plant and tossing the plants, it seems to me Keaton's loosened up a bit. He's still not being Keaton, but he's being a bit more free with Bruce Wayne, and I like that. Well, he has the confidence to know that this is going to work. When he shot the original Batman, he was doing it knowing that he was getting hate mail from fans who thought he was going to ruin it, and now people are anticipating him being back again. I think there's some confidence that comes from that, but again, I think the problem is Burton doesn't care for Batman, and that this movie becomes a showcase more for the villains than it ever does for our hero. And everybody complained two villains was too many, but yeah, Shrek is number three. And it becomes a very scattered film trying to tell all these stories because you've got the penguin and the circus gang in the sewers. And then Shrek is also the link for Catwoman because Selena Kyle works for him. Sean Young. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it'd probably be mentioned that Sean Young yet again rears her ugly head in trying to push herself into this production. Now, last time she had the role of Vicki Vale and fell off the horse. This time she thought she was owed, and there's some great footage out there of her skulking around Warner Brothers Studios dressed as Catwoman, trying to find Tim Burton, who's allegedly like hiding in his office, afraid <laughs> that Sean Young will find him, to insist that she is the perfect selena kyle catwoman and again in 2005 they put her in front of a batman poster to talk about that story and she did <laughs> <laughs> she just said that she asked herself what would catwoman do to get the role catwoman would go and take it but then when they have other people talking about the story michael keaton and a honcho at wb are in a meeting and she Burst through the door, and he's like, this is how different security was back then than now. She just bursts through the door and jumps on the desk, and he and Michael are just stunned into silence. <laughs> 
Oh, Hollywood. Yes, but, you know, she wasn't the only one. She might have been the one that went through the most extreme, but a lot of actresses wanted this part. This was a highly coveted role. I remember early on, people really earmarked it for Cher. That was the one that I always kept reading. It was like, oh, this really belongs to Cher because, I don't know, Cher is somebody's ideal of the perfect Catwoman. I'm glad they didn't go to Cher. But they went to Annette Benning and she was hired. Yeah. She was in a crime movie called The Grifters. She had a very saucy part. And I think that, yes, had she not been impregnated by Warren Beatty, we would have had her. Yeah, she was cast. They had to find Michelle Pfeiffer at the last minute. Thank God they did, because as much as I did like The Grifters and I like Annette Benning and other works, The American President, she's no Catwoman. No. I think she could pull it off. You know, we didn't see that side of her. But I'm not going to complain about Michelle Pfeiffer. I think that for whatever reasons that fate put her into the suit, they got a great Catwoman out of that. That's one complaint I don't have about this movie is that they found someone that is completely convincing as Catwoman. And you said that they'd earmarked Cher. Again, I said that they had said from day one, Danny DeVito and Robin Williams. Catwoman was one of those they could never white peg, you know? Women in Hollywood don't have the longevity of men, and so it's always hard to figure out who's of the moment. And she'd had Married to the Mob, Dangerous Liaisons, and so she was hot without ever having a huge mainstream box office smash. This was perfect for her. You really just needed someone that looked good in a latex sex outfit. I mean, And she does. (laughs) No, no, that's not true. I mean, that's all you could have done, I mean, if you wanted to be simple with the character. But this Catwoman's a lot more complicated. If you just wanted a babe in spandex, yeah, a lot of people could fill that role. God, Madonna, who they tried to court for this, could have done that. But no, they needed an actress for this, and one with comic timing. Michelle had hit all the bases. She had done comedy. She'd done sexy. She'd done drama. Although, I gotta say, I'd never seen her quite like this. You've never seen her with a live bird in her mouth? No. <laughs> I've never seen her, well, let's just say it. I mean, dominatrix. I think of her as a sultry woman. You know, she got nominated for Fabulous Baker Boys just a few years prior. That's probably what put her at the top of the casting list. But sultry is one thing, but this is downright dangerous. I felt she took a note from Nicholson's page. She's kind of crazy in this movie. I do not remember Catwoman being this crazy when I first saw this film. She loses it. I don't know that it would be Nicholson per se. I honestly think it comes off more legitimately crazy than Nicholson did. Nicholson was wacky. She does come off as just freaking nuts. And I love her in this. She is, hands down, my favorite performance. And it's not... Just because of the outfit, though, that probably doesn't hurt. No, she has a lot of time here to develop as Selena first. She's playing sort of a ditzy secretary. You know, she's kicked around by Shrek. No one listens to her ideas. She's just pathetic, really, when we see her at the beginning. And I have to say, there's another thread. You've pointed out Commerce and Christmas. This movie has an ill-defined second thesis of femininity and strong women. And it's personified through Catwoman. And during these mousy scenes, do you notice every time she's put down, it's because she tried to assert herself. She tries to speak up at the meeting where she says she has an idea about the power plants. And she's laughed off for just making good coffee. Then she goes home and she hears on her answering machine that her boyfriend dumped her. And what's her last line? I should have let him win at racquetball. So anytime she tries to be a strong woman, 
men dump her, sometimes literally out of a window. Yes. No, they definitely set that up. And the transformation, I got some questions here. There's no answer. What, you gonna ask about how do cats give CPR and bring you back to life? Or why does she have that much rubber in her house? Uh, no, more of comic book roots. Does Catwoman have a mystical background? No, it's something invented for this movie. She's got a complicated backstory. Again, DC continuity is just a nightmare. But when she first appeared in the 40s, she's just a chick in a dress who wore a cat mask and she was a cat burglar. It's actually pretty funny because Batman always kind of like trips himself and lets her get away and Robin's like, you let Catwoman get away again because he's got a crush on her. The more current Catwoman, again, Frank Miller really redefined her in Batman year one and she was a prostitute growing up on the streets and ends up learning martial arts and becomes, again, this cat burglar wears the cat suit just because it helps you sneak around. You're like a ninja in all black. And... She's really kind of an anti-hero more than a villain. She even teams up with Batman sometimes. But no mystical background. Do you really think she's mystical? Because I get from this movie that you could take it as mysticism, but you could also take it as just heightened reality. I never got magical off of her. All the cats around her, like, bring her back to life, and she has nine lives. Yeah, I don't think Burton wants to come out and say it, but I think there's a mystical element here, and I don't like it. Well, let me put it this way. This is colored by the fact that I have also seen the Halle Berry Catwoman movie, where they literally have cats breathing on her face and turning her into Catwoman. It kind of plays similar here. You know, she confronts Shrek about the power plant, He intimidates her, pushes her out the window. She hits a couple awnings with cats on them. She lands. She probably should be dead, but I'll go with you. If Joker can fall into toxic waste and that turns his skin into the Joker, then okay, she just had a concussion and now she's kind of crazy. But yes, all of the alley cats come out and bite her and prod her and seem to encourage a transformation that seems to me, I don't know, it seems to be otherworldly. I took those cats a totally different way. I'm going to alienate half of our listeners. I bleep and hate cats. I dislike cats. I'm allergic to them. They're evil. And they will eat you. A feral cat will eat a person for food. How I took this scene is these evil cats were hanging out in the alley and some food fell down and they came to eat her. They didn't bring her back to life. If she hadn't woken the hell up, she'd be kitty litter. Why didn't she become dog woman then? Why did she embrace the cats? <laughs> yeah, Arnie, I think you were stretching it. I appreciate what you're bringing in. You're right. It doesn't have to be mystical, I suppose, but it's an awkward moment that I'm not sure how to interpret. But I do like how she returns home and goes through the same motions we saw her do before, but in this zombified state. Yeah, it's it's again a commentary, I think, on 80s lifestyle and people in big cities going through their routines and her deciding to finally break the mold. It feels very dated to me now, but I do like it. And I like her performance. This is very 90s feminism feeling to me. Right, yes. Glass ceilings really hadn't been shattered in the way that they are now. And the idea that women could only be secretaries, some of this definitely, we've moved beyond that. But Burton works in broad strokes. These are much closer to the spirit of the 60s TV show than they would want to admit. I go with it because I understand this is how Burton works. 
And it's fun to watch her rip up her dolls and get that raincoat and break the sign that says hello there into hell here. I think the transformation is more fun. And it's something we don't get with anybody else. We already know who Batman is. Shrek doesn't turn into something supernatural. And Penguin is born the way that he is. I hate that Penguin's born bad. I could go with him being born deformed and his abandonment makes him evil. The baby killing the cat. Again, killing the cat. But... (laughs) The fact that he's born a malicious child, hate that. Especially with the comic book continuity. I mean, he was orphaned, he was bullied, and that's really what pushed him over. He was someone that didn't want to be bad, that he just tried to go along, go with the flow. And because he was kind of pudgy, had a big nose like birds, I mean, he was picked on, and and that's what finally turned him. So a very different origin story for the Penguin in this film. And by this point, I was very familiar with Gaston Leroux's novel, Phantom of the Opera, plus, of course, the play and everything. A baby that's abandoned for being deformed and becomes part of the circus is very Phantom of the Opera to me. And even if Phantom becomes evil, it's a different type of evil than what we're getting out of here. And the penguin in this movie, uh, yeah, Danny DeVito. Danny was always considered the best cast role for that because he's a small little guy who's kind of pudgy. And vulgar. But let's talk about him. (laughs) Yes, penguin. This was... A big sticking point when I watch the movie anytime I've seen it. And this is my third viewing for Batman Returns. When I first saw it, I absolutely hated him. I didn't get what they were even going for. To me, upon first blush, it felt like he was trying to imitate and fill the hole left by Nicholson. He's not? You have a second blush? Because all his bad one-liners, and they are bad, it felt to me like it's Nicholson light. Well, I don't know that it's light. I feel like a little more racy. I mean, when he's ogling some fan who wants him to be mayor. And You're the hottest young person a role model could have. Yeah, this is why McDonald's pulled their supports. I was shocked by this. Like, I do not remember some of these lines. Just the pussy I've been looking for? I was shocked. Seeing this in a mainstream Batman film, I'm going, wow, wow. I did not remember that. You know the line that struck me most? Because pussy is a double entendre when referring to cats that is commonly done. But when Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle are dancing at the end party, and he goes, it's not that difficult, and she goes, oh, semi-hard. That's the one that had me on the floor. They're making an erection reference. Oh, he does it all the time. He does throwaways about umbrella sizes. And this is not Nicholson because Nicholson didn't go this crude. Sure, he had a thing for Vicky, but I mean, most of his jokes were bat puns. This guy feels predatory sexually. And it's not out of character of Danny DeVito's persona, but it feels distinctly its own. And more to the point, in seeing it the second time, I'm seeing him more in the role that I see, well, Catwoman and Batman, that he is a victim of circumstance, that he is pitiful, but he's not really the bad guy here. I really feel like his rage is somewhat understandable when you consider his circumstance. I'd agree if he hadn't killed that cat. (laughs) You hate cats! I do, but I don't like that he was born bad either. Well, was he born bad? He was raised by carnies. But he killed the cat before he was... He was thrown into a crib with bars that he couldn't enjoy Christmas. So the only thing he could do to get his parents' attention was kill the cat that was roaming free. I mean, it was a plea for attention. It's something we see in children all the time when they're denied things. I don't think 
they're saying that he was born a monster. He was born deformed. What's funny is the different takes we have on this movie, Stuart, because just like the cats, I took it as he was in the cage because he was dangerous. And they had to keep him in the cage lest he kill more than just a cat. No, I had a very different take. You know, Stuart keeps saying this is commentary on the rich and that, I mean, here's the rich family and they can't take their kid because he's got three flipper fingers instead of a regular hand so they lock him up like a monster this is the rich are making the monster it's not the kid it's what his parents did because he would be an outcast of upper society yes i agree they're the contemptible ones and that comes through here more i mean i definitely see a pitifulness yeah we feel so odd about penguin i know the first time i saw this movie i thought it was so strange that when he comes into this plot here it's to sell the people that he is a hero that you know he stages this kidnapping of the mayor's kid so that people will love him and so that of course he can get access to the firstborn kids in the hall of records but that's almost secondary that he's trying to instill people's trust and that wasn't what I thought Penguin was going to do. I thought Penguin would try to freeze Gotham City or have penguins robbing people or something. I didn't think that it would be this emotionally complicated. Was that his plan for becoming a hero? Because that happens early on. He saves the mayor's kid. He gets the sympathy of the people. And then you get this whole sidetrack story of him running for mayor. And then that doesn't work out. I thought he was going to just kidnap the oldest children out of spite. Was that his plan all along? Yeah, it was his plan all along. That's why he's in the Hall of Records doing all that research. He knows who his parents are. Yeah. He's trying to find out everybody's firstborn children by going through line by line. That's why he has all those stacks of paper. He never wanted to be mayor. He just, the idea of basically the sex, if you notice when it's brought up to him that he could be mayor, all of a sudden he starts fantasizing about all the women he could have. That makes him go, maybe I'll hold off on that firstborn thing and see about being mayor. Yeah, it's Shrek's plot to make him mayor and to have someone that he thinks he control. But yes, his plot all along is to get back at the people of Gotham by taking and killing their firstborn children. But you know what? I'm torn on the Penguin because at times I love his libidinous attitude. I love those dirty lines. It's somewhat refreshing. I didn't remember this movie being so filthy. French flipper trick and all that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, I just can't really enjoy his performance here. Maybe it's how he moves in that obvious padded outfit. Maybe it's just the fact that his plot is so convoluted, but I never find him threatening, and I don't find him fun to watch the way I did Nicholson. More often than not, his jokes fall very flat. Well, here's the thing. It's not that I think that they're not funny, although I'm not laughing. It's that I'm repulsed. And that's something that I did not have with Joker. With Joker, you either laugh with him or maybe you get scared of him if you're young and very impressionable. But with Penguin, you're not scared of him. You're not laughing with him. You're just kind of grossed out. It's a sickening feeling, right? I mean, when he bites that guy's nose, that didn't get a laugh out of the crowd. We all, like, kind of gasped. <laughs> well, that's because it was the youngest son from the Hogan family. <laughs> Oh, is that who that was? Yeah. And that's the problem with the penguin. Even when they clean him up, even when he's running for mayor, he's still got those nasty teeth, still got those circle under the eyes. They can throw some cucumbers on there, clean that right up. I mean, he's still ghastly looking. He always looks menacing, and it's hard to sympathize when the person's a monster the entire time. And that's a third target they're trying to mock. 
the media. Notice this movie actually was a little bit ahead of its time because we were still a couple years away from Nancy Kerrigan and OJ, but we did have Rodney King. So the way that he comes up and he's a media spectacle and all the reporters they could afford on the budget of this film, which I'm sure was high, but they spent it on penguins instead of people. This dozen reporters are following him around and then they have the image consultants wear these gloves. Voters love fingers. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I, this is where I realize now that Burton has decided to make a satirical comedy. That the things that I liked about his Batman were the things he liked about it. And that's what he's going to focus on. Who even knows where Michael Keaton is in all of this? <laughs> he's sitting around brooding in his room. The fun of this movie, if you're going to have any fun at all, is watching him poke fun at political processes, the commercialization of Christmas, the switching of the gender roles with Catwoman. It's anything but Batman. It works as humor. It is not working as an action movie. You know why this is working as humor and this is not Burton. Penguin running for mayor is straight up a plot from Adam West Batman. Really? Oh yes. There, It's a great episode too where Penguin decides to run for mayor because then he can control everything and he's winning. No one can beat him because he's so great at schmoozing everyone and so everyone decides Batman you're our only hope. You have to run against him and Batman is just so straightforward like a woman comes up Batman kiss my child and he's like no I, I have germs and the child will get sick and the Penguin's like look at that he hates children I'll kiss him and it's this great political satire done in the 60s. Well I'd love to see that episode it's the fun of this character now i don't think penguin works when he's supposed to be a threat but i do like him in these kinds of scenes i do like watching him with the image consultants with playing with his public persona and his private anger i like the idea of it i just feel that it wasn't fleshed out well enough i feel like while burden is trying to be satirical his satire is coming across about as scattered as a Abram Zucker film. You know what I mean? There, there's too many targets now. There's no focus to it. It's just, we're going to make fun of whatever we choose to make fun of this scene. I definitely feel it's fleshed out. It's wrong to say it's not fleshed out. It's focusing on Penguin too much. I mean, again, I ask, where's Batman in all of this? He kicks off his mayoral campaign, and suddenly they realize they're almost an hour into this. We need fighting. And suddenly, all of a sudden, the poodles are dropping off bombs and, <laughs> and clowns are shooting missiles into, into shops. I have no idea why. It's only because they realize, oh my god, we've been making the Penguin and Catwoman show, and this is supposed to be about Batman returning. And Michael Keaton confuses me in this as Bruce Wayne, because when he's watching Penguin come up from the sewer, he seems like all moved. I hope he finds his parents. And then two scenes later, he's like, I'm investigating him because I know there's something wrong. Yeah, makes no sense. He's literally just driving around stalking him in the Batmobile. <laughs> like, like, this guy's creepy. I mean, he's creepier than Catwoman or Penguin, or at least just as creepy as Penguin. It was a choice by Burton to not emphasize the heroic quality of Batman. And the younger you are, the weirder this movie is going to be. This is an adult movie that was wrongly marketed to children. Let me ask, you guys have said Batman is far too passive. He's not out patrolling. He's sitting around waiting for the bat signal. Is Catwoman a hero? She goes out, she stops a rapist. And then she demeans the woman. I felt like she was looking down on her. I had to save you. Do better. You're a woman. I am Catwoman. Hear me roar, which is a groaner. It is a groaner. She has some bad lines, too. Arnie, you said that you felt like there was a lot of good ideas here. and Maybe not the execution was strongest. And I'm right there with you. I like 
some of the commentary they're trying to do, you know, have this female character that goes out and tries to empower women, but I just feel like the execution over and over again falls flat. Well, she's not out to empower women. She's out to do whatever she can for herself because she's felt held down. And so every time she sees a woman held down, yeah, it meets with her scorn. Yeah, she's no hero in that she's trying to save women. I don't see that in her character at all. What I see is her roar and her rage at not being held down herself anymore. But she's selfish, like all of these characters. They're thinking about their own motives. Batman isn't. Well, I don't know what he's thinking about. Dinner? (laughs) And even Alfred doesn't have much advice. You know, who was so helpful and sagely and grandfatherly and offering tips and hints and even helping the plot forward. Here, I really feel like he doesn't do anything but pass out drinks. Come on, they give us some exposition on what happened to Vicky. Yeah, I'm at least glad Vicky got a reference in this movie. All future girlfriends will never be mentioned again. Vicky and calling out that she was let into the Batcave. It's a nice nod. I just wish they would have at least added one more line where Alfred went, well, it seemed like the right thing to do at the time or something to explain his side of it. I can explain it. Well, you were never going to do it. You're so goddamn lame. I do everything for you. Why don't I put on the suit and go fight crime? I think he did that in the 66 series, too. <laughs> I know he did, yeah. We saw it in the movie. He put on the domino mask and went out in the Batmobile. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the whole plot is to first make the mayor seem weak, which is why the circus gang is out there. And the wrench in the mix is that Catwoman is out to blow up Shrek's department store. Yeah, probably my favorite Catwoman moment is when she gets to the sporting goods, finds her whip, and she does that little jump rope trick thing with it. That is such a delight. I love her in that moment. Oh, yeah. Best scene in the film. Agreed completely. And as a kid, I didn't realize quite how sexy it was. Security guards are like, I don't know whether to open fire or fall in love. And it's true. You just don't. (laughs) No, it is the best scene of the movie. Easily. Hands down, and probably because nobody else is in it. Yeah, well, well it, <laughs> shortly thereafter, she throws some aerosol cans into a microwave, blows up a whole floor of the store, and we get all three principles there. It's the hour point. It's right when it should be happening. Batman, Penguin, Catwoman, all in the same corner. What's going to happen next? I think they have trouble from this point on. Unlike you guys, I don't have a problem with this lengthy setup with the villains. I like the villains more than Batman. I think that they don't have anything for Batman to do. But after this point, it is a struggle to work him into their plots. I disagree again. I think at this point he becomes their plot. Yes. But for reasons I don't quite understand. I mean, Penguin just flies off. But he and Catwoman get in a fight, and I don't know why they're fighting. I don't know why she's stabbing him. He didn't really do much to her. She blew up a building. Maybe he's trying to stop her. But it seems like, again, a fight for fight's sake. We need to create the antagonism between them. And she's Catwoman. He's Batman. So who's going to question if they start punching each other? Right. I think you're right about that. We expect them to fight. They feel like that's their natural role. She's energized with putting down patriarchy, and he's out to fight crime. So it doesn't seem so far-fetched they'd end up on a roof and go at it. And we want to see that. Let's face it. It was all over the trailers. It's the selling point of the movie. I don't know what didn't seem natural about this. The bad guy, the good guy, they have to fight. This seems expected to me. Just like I always want the love interest to have a reason to be a love interest, here I would just want a reason for them to kick each other's asses. 
I, I think it's enough that she's created vandalism and she will soon associate herself with the penguin who's more clearly a bad guy or, or someone he's always been suspicious of. Is it a hazy reason to fight her? Wouldn't it make more sense to follow her around in the Batmobile? Sure. But, you know, we want this. Like I said, it's an hour into the movie. We've been building towards this. It's the fight we are here to see. And it is the catalyst that gets Catwoman and Penguin to team up in the Just the Pussy I've Been Looking For scene. Right. I do like their interplay. I like it when those two get on screen together because she's in this dominatrix outfit. He's just horny as hell. I find those scenes to have a good energy to them. Yes. Whereas Vicky Vale was always just kind of the girl in danger. By making the love interest also at this time an equal, it really does give it a different charge. It's not just Jack Nicholson slobbering over Kim Basinger. They give it back to each other. You know, she puts the bird in her mouth and he threatens a cat with his pointy umbrella. (laughs) Given the tone of this film, I should clarify, you mean a literal bird and a literal umbrella. These are not euphemisms. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe they are in a metaphorical way. But yes, no, they are fun to watch. They're believable as uneasy allies. We know that their truce will collapse. We know that they don't have any real vested interest in each other's plots. That said, I did kind of wonder why Catwoman never strong-armed Penguin about Shrek. You know, Penguin has such close ties to the man that she wants to bring down. Wouldn't she work that angle a little bit? Oh, come on. They dropped the whole power plant thing they spent an hour on. I I don't (laughs) think tight plots are what they're going for in this movie. Does she even know he's with Shrek? It's fuzzy there, too. Shrek is standing next to him at all his press conferences. Yeah, I think it would be hard not to know that he wasn't Shrek's guy with him doing all of the press for him. But it's just hard for them to juggle at this point. From this point forward, I have liked the story up until this point, and now it does feel as messy as what you guys are saying. And again, I like Michelle Pfeiffer in this, but when she starts to quote-unquote bathe herself on Penguin's bed, and she's like licking the rubber and rubbing it on her face... I haven't felt so embarrassed for Michelle Pfeiffer since she was doing the Cool Rider dance in Grease 2. <laughs> it seemed like a natural extension of everything else she was doing. It didn't shock me, actually. She was so crazy in this movie. Yeah, I, I buy it. I mean, sometimes they push the cat metaphor too far, but not as far as Halle Berry will push it. <laughs> oh, we'll get there, but not part of this retrospective. Yeah, another Catwoman to go before then. So then <laughs> the plot really just goes all over the map. They decide they're going to frame Batman for a murder. This is a shocking scene, or at least I was taken aback. Penguin and the Poodle Lady obtained one of his batarangs. They're remote controlled now because, of course, Batman doesn't <laughs> do anything like throw it and still. <laughs> Wasn't Game Boy really big at this time? I mean, he literally <laughs> programs where people are standing Ooh. and just lets it fly around. It's awful. <laughs> I know. It bothered me, too. I was like, Game Gear, maybe? (laughs) But there's this really, like, wicked scene with, you know, this ditzy blonde who's the ice princess that's supposed to hit the plunger and turn the Christmas tree on. She wasn't able to do it last time when the gang shot up the tree. Well, she's getting ready for it, and they come in like talent scouts, and he hurls that thing. They cut away from it. I literally thought he just put it in her head. Oh, I thought she was dead. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, There was a good splat sound. I was shocked. As much as the nose biting, I thought, wow, this movie is mean. This is a vicious movie. I would not want my little kids to see this. I thought the same thing. I was shocked that they just implanted a battering in her. But no, 
They just knocked her out to kill later. Yeah, but they have to get a joke in there before Gordon goes on and saying, well, we only have circumstantial evidence that Batman is involved. And he's like holding a plastic bag with the bloody battering. <laughs> you know what this is? Some of the script was written by Daniel Waters, who wrote Heathers, a dark yeah. comedy about teen suicide. And I can sense that in little moments like this. I'm like, ah, yes, this is a Heathers vibe all the way. But the battering isn't enough. This bothers me. <laughs> They then call Batman out to stop yet another random circus gang attack. He puts the shields up on his car, like arming a security system. Anytime he walks away from the Batmobile, the shields come up. But they just come, turn the shields off, and implant a remote control on the car. Yeah, because they have, like, a barbershop pull remote control. This is your dark and gritty Batman where the clowns walk up and just push a button and turn off the security. It felt like a comic book to me and not a modern dark comic book, but just a comic from the 60s that, yep, the bad guys have a machine that can undo the shields and that's why they're bad and go with it. But from a logical standpoint, I needed to have them have a reason to be able to undo this Wayne tech. And what I don't even get is it shows them wiring and all this stuff, but it's just a little device stuck on the bottom. Like, later on, they just rip the device off the bottom, and it's fine. I don't know why they had to get into the engine to do that. This is not comic book, guys. This is cartoon. Tim Burton's is doing a live-action Looney Tunes. This is Roadrunner defeating Coyote with his Acme products by turning them against him. A lot of the sight gags, a lot of the humor, a lot of this. You know, there's a big, strong man, and then he looks down, and he finds out he has the bomb on him. I'm like, this is a punchline that they would use in Roadrunner. That is what Tim Burton has wanted to do. You know, that's what he does. He makes cartoon characters come to life. And now that he has free reign, this has become his Looney Tunes homage. You mentioned the guy who gets the dynamite in his waist. If we thought Batman was blatant about killing people last time, this time he's using the Batmobile's exhaust to set people aflame. He's throwing dynamite in their pants. This Batman takes no prisoners. Well, everyone, really. I feel like (laughs) this movie is just more jagged, more sharp. It has more humor. Burton says that he thinks that this is a lighter movie, but only in the sense that everything is played more for laughs. But they're dark laughs. So there's a little coin-op toy, you know, those (laughs) little rides outside of supermarkets that kids ride for a quarter. The penguins in a Batmobile version, like, when did they have the time to shape the fiberglass to make this coin-op ride that's actually a remote control for the Batmobile so he could take the Batmobile on a spin and, and run over old ladies on the road? The funny thing for me is I hated that it was a coin-op ride until I realized it was a Batmobile that probably was sitting outside of Kmart and Tim Burton just grabbed it and brought it in, and then I was fine with it. That's probably (laughs) very true. And then Batman's just not trying to get control of the Batmobile. He has the sense to start recording the Penguin on a CD. You know, he is Batman, so I guess I shouldn't be surprised he has a CDR in his car. Hey, this was very 1992 cutting edge. Penguin is telecasting into a CD, so he's going to burn it to a disc. This was before burners were regular. I was on the cutting edge. I bought a CD burner for $1,600 four years after this. And it was probably like, what, a quarter speed? One X. It took me an hour a disc. But Bruce Wayne's a multimillionaire. Obviously, this was okay for him. I was impressed by that part of it. Then he gets control back. The cops are chasing him for that murder. 
And so we get to see that the Batmobile can transform. Now, Christopher Nolan will rip this off a few years later, but... Well, we'll get to it when we get to the Nolan films, but I think there's a lot of things he's taken from these. As I'm watching them, he's like, I'm going to show you how you do this right. Because the Batmobile, I wrote down Batpod which is what it's called in the Nolan film. I know there was a toy of this. I don't remember what it was called, but it's a thinner version of the Batmobile to go through the alleyways. Yeah, what's the purpose? So that when you get into incredibly tight areas, you can go through them? That doesn't seem to be that helpful, that be <laughs> that much thinner than a car. This is a man who puts scissors on airplanes in case of balloon attacks. <laughs> Did he destroy it with that action? I'm never quite sure. Yeah, I mean, they talk about how they have to rebuild it, and you can't just go down to, you know, Pet Boys to get new parts. Yeah, that's right. They show him working on it, don't they? Yep. And so Batman gets back, fixes his Batmobile, and then uses the CD to ruin Penguin's chances for office. I'm just glad to know that, much like me, Burton is also a big fan of UHF. As this was the exact ending of UHF. Wait, in UHF they scratch a CD like a record? Like a DJ? Because I knew that was bullcrap even when I saw this movie. That's not how CDs work. Go ahead, Stuart. All right, let me paint the picture for you at the free screening that we saw this movie at, originally back in 92. We're sitting there. We've been waiting for Keaton to do something cool for quite some time. He goes, and we know he's going to disrupt this press conference. We know how he's going to do it. He's playing the sound bits of him castigating Gotham every time Penguin approaches the mic. Arnie is loving it. He's laughing it. The CD scratch thing happens. Arnie goes, hit, hit. And then the laugh, like, chokes. And he, like, he goes strangely silent. And I look over. And I'm like, what? Like, I think he might have been choking on popcorn or something. He goes, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> Stopped him cold. Like, I'm going along with this movie. Batmobile splitting up to have a little card. No problem. A guy that looks like a penguin, a lady that acts like a cat. No problem. <laughs> I'm right there. I'm right there. You can't effing scratch a CD like a record. No, that's Arnie's need for logic really did at that point, even at that age, even though he had already bought all the toys and had gone in knowing he was going to love this movie, <laughs> this moment, more than anything else that happens in this movie, is the reason why you walked away angry from this film, Arnie. Actually, no. I think that I was realizing that this was no Batman 89 already, and then this was like the breaking moment. It was a straw, yeah. That yes. The camel's back snapped in half, and it was audible. <laughs> and everyone could hear it. At this point, it literally choked in your throat. <laughs> like that. <laughs> and I just scowled the rest of the movie. Yeah, you wanted to laugh at that joke. It was kind of cute. I mean, but the logic problems that it created overwhelmed any sense of fun. And what's funny is, now I can go, you know, they make these little turntables that fake scratch for Xbox I suppose Bruce Wayne could have had a CD player that allowed him to scratch. You made a 180 on the CD scratching issue. But yes, when I saw this in theaters, I was pissed. I'd had enough CDs skip on me that I knew you could not scratch a disc like it was vinyl. I was upset. And many times in the intervening 20 years, Stuart has recounted the story to me <laughs> of my own anger. So when we were getting to this podcast, I knew Stuart would doubt me on that one. Mm. 
<laughs> I have not rewatched this film. I maybe watched a few minutes of it if it's been on TV, but I've not sat down and rewatched this film some, since it came out in theaters. This may be the reason why. It's one of those scenes that has always stuck with me and always ticked me off with it. But come on, we're adults now. Why deny one of Keaton's few moments of mirth here? I mean, he scowled so much throughout this movie. Isn't it nice to see him actually cut it up just a little? I mean, Jesus. He's gotten so far away from being the comedy guy of the 80s. I mean, it should be said, in between making Batman, he did Pacific Heights, where he played a killer. One Good Cop, where he was not a very amusing police force officer. And then we'd go on to do My Life, where he's dying from cancer i mean like he stopped being the funny guy with beetlejuice and from this point forward we rarely ever saw him be light and mirthful again on screen so i at least can appreciate this moment for no other reason for all of its problems and logic hiccups at least it is the one time in this movie where keaton winks at us and says yeah i can still be that guy I don't know, I thought it was pretty funny and much ado about nothing, but I'm one of the few champions of that film. But yeah, I think it's a case of too little too late in both my watching then and my watching now. It's, you know, this film's called Batman Returns. I'm kind of thinking when. Yeah. Do I want him to? I'm just fine watching Penguin and Catwoman, really. You can stay away. And you can take Penguin out of that. I'm good with just Catwoman. Which they wanted to do, it should be said. This movie, they wanted to create a spinoff right away. They weren't sure exactly what they were going to do with the sequel, but they knew that they wanted to have a Catwoman movie with Michelle. So Penguin outed. Max Shrek seems to have absolutely no fallout from that whatsoever. No, he's going on with his party. He's coming back into the plot. He will play a different role because Penguin is now foregoing his idea that he ever was a human being. He is not Cobblepot anymore. He is an animal. He is the Penguin. And he is going to, I think, take Chip away from Shrek as well as all the other newborn. And so the Act 3 launches in with the idea that he's going to bust through Shrek's party, ruin it, and do all of that. And Catwoman is engaging her plot at this point now, too, which I totally don't understand. But she's decided that she's going to come there and shoot her boss here as Selina Kyle in this moment. Not as Catwoman. Not at any other time that she could have done this. She's just going to put a bullet in him. Oh, come on. This scene is so obvious. Everyone's wearing a mask. She's Catwoman in disguise as Selina Kyle. And Batman's in disguise as Bruce. Yeah, it's very obvious, but she's going to shoot him? It doesn't make sense. It kind of does to me in that she's been unfocused anger this whole time, when really what broke her was that she was pushed out a window by Max. And by this point, she then later was pushed off a roof by Batman, and Penguin dropped her into a greenhouse. Every man has literally dumped her, and she's just ready to finally focus her rage back on the man who started it all. I actually really like these scenes. We only get a few scenes, because of the narrative being so cluttered, of Bruce Wayne and Selina Kyle together, but they've had a flirtation throughout the movie. You know, he sees her when she comes back serving coffee again with Shrek at the meeting, and then they run into each other outside a department store window, and he invites her over for a date. And this is the fourth and final scene that they have together in their alter egos, in their day-to-day life. 
And it's kind of nice the way that, you know, they end up falling into the habits of their superheroes. They see mistletoe, and that triggers them to say each other's lines that they said to each other on the roof. Oh, just like in Batman 89, where the Joker says something that triggers a memory. That's what I hate about this. And both lines are completely ridiculous. (laughs) Devil in the dead moonlight. Who's eating mistletoe? And especially the first time they use that line, they're fighting and Batman looks up and says, mistletoe is deadly if you eat it. Why was he about to shove it in her mouth? (laughs) I don't understand why he said it. No, but that is something I'm always aware of. Maybe because they hang mistletoe around food and stuff. And like, I don't know. I always think of that. I like this bit. And I like the devil in the moonlight bit. So maybe that's just me. But I, I don't know. I thought this was a economical way of them outing themselves to each other. And I particularly like her line after they realize what they've done. She's like, does this mean we have to start fighting? I do love that line. I love both of their acting during that scene where they step back and they have great facial expressions as they realize each other's identities. I do like that. I mean, it's something that's been toyed with because they were almost having sex on a couch, but he had holes in his ribs that she gave him and she had an acid burn on his arm because Batman now throws acid at his enemies. So I've been liking the teases of the reveal. And when it happens... I like it. I do like it. I don't like the line. I don't like the way, but I like the reaction and the follow-up and the fact that they just keep dancing and try to figure it out until Penguin crashes the party. And I can't help wondering if maybe they don't have some of this chemistry because Keaton and Pfeiffer were ex-lovers at this point. They had been together and they were not anymore. And I don't know. It's just something about this scene, but this is the best that they both are in this moment, in the whole movie. I wish we had gotten more Wayne's Kyle pair-ups, but there just wasn't enough. Maybe if they had focused only on Catwoman and no Penguin, they could have done more of this. Or just remove Shrek. I mean, removing one of the three villains would have been an improvement. Removing two, possibly a vast improvement, especially if, yes, Pfeiffer as Catwoman, Keaton as Batman, them alone with this type of interplay is a movie I really want to see. Agree. More than a Catwoman spinoff, I wanted to see Catwoman be a real force in the story. Not that I think that she's bad when she plays off a penguin, but it does get to be so complicated here as they try to bring it all together at the end. And it's like 20 minutes of... I guess you'd call it action in air quotes as the gang steals babies. The only adult child they go for is Chip and Penguin doesn't even take him. He just takes Shrek instead. That makes me angry. Why? Well, that was your plot. Oh, okay. <laughs> Never mind. I'll just ignore it. The scene that kills me with Walken where I said his performance is phoned in is right here when Penguin's taking Chip and Max says, take me instead. The whole power plant was for Chip. We were supposed to get that the only thing Shrek really cares about is his son. This scene should have come across as Shrek was actually thinking his son was in danger and was actually scared for his son. I get none of that. I get nothing from this. It's almost like he has an alternate plan for escape, but he doesn't. I remember making a joke at the time that he was Christopher Walk-On, as in that's all he did. (laughs) And then, yes, the whole plot to steal the children, that goes away instantly. Were they afraid of putting little kids in danger on the screen and crying or something? Because literally, it's just a choo-choo train, and Batman appears with a shadow, and that whole plot is over. It's done. They run away from it. Okay, so I didn't fall asleep, because... (laughs) I had the same problem. I went back. Because all of a sudden they're like, Batman saved all the children. And I'm like, huh? Did I, did the 
DVD skip? Did I fall asleep? Like, you got to show Batman doing something, right? Oh, no. not a Tim Burton's Batman, you know. He just grabs no. the organ grinder, and that's the end of it. I, although I must admit, I do like the organ grinder monkey coming back and delivering the note to Penguin. <laughs> but that gag is not good enough to make what has happened justified. I mean, that infuriates me that the whole goal for Penguin is thrown away in a bit of Looney Tunes comedy. And it's undercut by the fact that Batman has stationery with the Bat logo up the <laughs> <Yes>. top. <laughs> Did he buy it with the Bat MasterCard? We'll find out in two movies. <laughs> but never fear, we have penguins with nuclear missiles strapped to them. Here we are with your dark and gritty Batman movie. The penguins are cute, though. Unlike those evil bastard cats, I like the penguins. Yeah, except the ones that were midgets in suits. <laughs> those freaked me the hell out, those mutant penguins <laughs> those were freaky and obvious like their outfits are made of felt i do feel like penguin is just grasping at straws now he's like well that plot didn't work so i'll just send them all to the center of town to blow up is that why they're all going to the center of town why do they have to go to the center of town to blow things up they're rockets they shoot yeah. that's what i don't understand i thought maybe they're bombs but they're missiles clearly and they're fired like missiles and this it's- ending is a mess and how how does bad <laughs> Batman save the day. Him and Alfred sit in the cave, jam the signal. Really, no, Alfred does it all. Jams the signal, which we saw earlier when he looped the audio over the penguin. Like, they didn't even change the trick. They just did the same trick again. No, Batman's hard at work scouring the sewers. I gotta say, as cool as it is to have a bat boat, where can you take it out in Gotham? The fact that he has to go cruising the sewers, that kind of ruins it, doesn't it? <laughs> it's as equally one use as the bat plane. This seems to be exactly <laughs> the right width to do the sewers, and it doesn't look like it's actually nautical enough to handle rough waters. Was it really a boat? I thought it was just something to ride around in the sewers in. yeah you know devito has been going around in his little literal duck boat which has wheels and becomes a all-terrain vehicle later on it felt like an obligatory redo of the first one last time we had a plane this time we have a boat no it definitely is and i'm feeling like burton is done with his satirical targets all of this wrap-up just shows how disinterested he is in having batman fight and win a valiant battle this is all just like happenstance like he just blows in there the duck boat is decapitated the penguins like blow up the zoo that they're hiding in and then catwoman's there the penguins return to the zoo and penguin decides to get the controller i think he thinks he's disarming it but it launches the missiles, but the missiles don't even kill them. The missiles awaken bats in the zoo who attack Penguin, and he falls back into the sewer. Is that what happened? Yes. I thought he just fell. I I just thought he was on a ledge. He tripped. (laughs) No, there's bats. There's, like, CGI bats. This was one of the early uses of CGI. They replicated penguins, and I think those bats were equally phony he's killed by not batman not that batman would have any qualms about killing him but he's killed by bats that's what blows me away so the penguin falls into this green slimy water the batman goes down there we see the penguin rise all menacing green blood or whatever coming from his throat you think he's gonna do something batman's gonna have to actually kill him or stop him but no he just falls down and dies again 
Like, Batman does not defeat the Penguin. Why does the Penguin rise again? He goes, he grabs the wrong umbrella, he's like, I'll kill you later, and dies. I'm telling you, that is something you would see Wiley e. Coyote after he blew up and is charred. He would go to do something and it would fail. I mean, this is a punchline. And at this point, we don't want comedy. This is the action set piece. And while it's probably no easier to write a mano a mano between a penguin and Batman as it was for Joker and Batman, I feel like it's so oddly anticlimactic and that not only does it not feel like a good fight, but it feels like all of a sudden we are supposed to mourn for this. We are supposed to feel bad. The penguin pallbearer midgets come out. Yeah. They have been playing this whole movie with Penguin being behind bars. I was perfectly willing and accepting and expecting that he would go to jail. Do they have to kill the villain at the end of every movie? Is that the precedent now? Is that one new villain or two new villains every movie and then we kill them? I mean, they're going to run through the roster here. Well, Stuart, they don't kill off Catwoman. Well, we think they do, but she defeats the other bad guy. She defeats Shrek. She kisses him with an electric wire. And strangely, Batman, after all the people he's killed, doesn't want her to kill him. He wants to take him to jail. When did Batman turn over that leaf? <laughs> and when did the bat mask become so pliable? He just rips it off. It's a, such a strange moment. I guess we needed Shrek to realize what he was dealing with. It wouldn't be satisfying if they took him out without realizing it was his old secretary and the guy he was fighting over the power plant. That he had been defeated by those people. We needed to know that. But it plays out so oddly. So not satisfying as drama. Once again, I think it's just a proof that this movie is just so muddled that you and I see everything differently. I thought he was only taking off his mask to try to get through to Selena, and Max was completely incidental in all that. Well, I do think that is why he took off the mask, that he was trying to say that we could be those people again. We don't have to be our inflated alter egos that are destructive and warring with each other. I mean, he did it more, I think, to sell the idea of don't attack me or wind up with me. He is a lonely guy. We do know he has nothing to do when he goes home at night. So <laughs> I do think you're right. That is predominantly why he takes it off. But we also want Shrek to know, the bad guy to know who he's been beaten by. I do love the line, Bruce, what are you doing dressed up as Batman? Yeah, he never totally gets it. That is, it is funny that way. And she ends up using the very taser, the first weapon that she got from the mucker at the beginning of the movie to take him out. With a horrible line calling him anti-claws. I really, some of these lines in this movie just are horrible. Oh, I didn't hear that. She actually calls him anti-claws? Yeah, pucker up anti-claws. Oh, How about a die for a die? No. I mean, some of these are, they're lies. No, they're, they're puns. They're really bad puns. I think that that is actually an accepted trope of these kinds of movies. I mean, God knows Schwarzenegger has made a career out of them. And we'll get to them. Yeah. And can I just say, I wish we got to them in this one where there was a recall election. <laughs> How perfect would it have been? Hey, I'm the one in California. You can't make that joke. <laughs> so after this climactic, maybe, and battle, we get Bruce Wayne saying Merry Christmas, goodwill towards men and women. Again, it's that not quite 
fully fleshed out, needed a rewrite, pro-feminine thing. I never got that Batman was anti-woman, but now we see he's pro. It's just a weird line to end the film on. This is your dark, your violent, your perverse Batman film, and you get the ending out of Scrooge, you know, goodwill towards men and women, like... You keep holding out that this is going to be weird and dark and like the comic book. It's very clear to me that Burton does not want to make that movie, and he's made, I think the movie he's wanted to make. I've accepted that. You know, if this was the Penguin saying Merry Christmas, there might be some double entendre there, but (laughs) just boring old Bruce Wayne saying it, it doesn't seem like a Burton thing to do. Well, you know, they ended the last movie with Vicky in the limo with Alfred. There's a little bit of symmetry here, but I don't know. Do we miss Vicky? Should she have been in here? Hell no. Hell no. Again, you already said this, Stuart. Catwoman is equal to Batman. She is so much a better interest because she's actually interesting. Yeah, I agree. And we get to see that Catwoman could return. You already said that they were talking about a spinoff. Even after Burton left Batman, they were talking about a spinoff with Catwoman. This last shot was a studio mandate at the 11th hour, filmed like two weeks before it was due to be out, to say, hey, by the way, Catwoman might have lived. Yeah, I I think we would have assumed that anyway. She counted off the lives that she had lost. Cats have nine lives. I get it. But it underscores it. And again, it's symmetry to the last movie. If the last movie's last shot was Batman staring at the bat signal, then let's do the same thing with Catwoman. Which again, why I wondered if she was a hero earlier, if we were to think she was, because the only person she really targeted violently was Shrek, who also was a criminal. She operates in a special place and always has, even in, you know, the silly, campy Batman 66 one, she never gets rebuked in the same way that all the other villains do. I mean, there is a double standard when it comes to women and criminal punishment with Batman. Well, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Batman Returns? Jacob? One of my favorite Catwoman lines in this film is, Sickos never scare me. At least they're committed. And you know what? Burton, he's committed to something here. I'm not sure I'm willing to go with it, though. I like the satire going on. I like the play between Penguin and Catwoman, and I really like Catwoman a lot in this film. Like, there's all these little moments I like, and there's a lot of things in theory that I like. But the execution's pretty poor in this movie. I don't feel the style's there as much as it was in the last film, even though Burton's said to have more control or almost total control over this film. I Just visually, I don't feel it's as striking as Batman 89. This plot is a mess. I don't know what's going on during the last hour of this film. Everything that was set up with power plants and that is totally gone. This is chaos. This is what happens if you let the Joker run a production of a movie. Just total chaos everywhere. And there's some neat things in here, but this isn't a Batman movie. It's about villains. And I almost wish Burton would just grasp onto that and just do a movie about sickos and creeps and weirdos that's what he's done with all his other ones that's what he likes and that's what he's good at when he's trying to force this hero in there it's just not working for me in this film you know if batman 89 i was willing to go with it enough to recommend this one's just no it goes too far i cannot recommend batman returns Stuart. Oh, I agree with you, Jacob. If you're going to recommend this movie, it's not because you love Batman in it. It's 
been a grower for me. You know, when I originally saw this, I didn't want to like it. I was satisfied that you didn't like it, Arnie, because quite honestly, I didn't get what Burton was trying to do with the humor. And having watched it a second time, maybe about six or seven years ago, I remember thinking I liked half of it. I liked the Catwoman stuff. I liked the Battle of the Sexes kind of stuff. But I felt like Penguin was a real black hole in this movie. And I thought it just didn't work because he couldn't fulfill the Nicholson quota. But watching it this third time, I don't know. I actually enjoyed it the most that I ever had. And I actually think it's a little bit better than the last movie as comedy. I've already accepted that Batman, as it's going to be done by Burton, is never going to work as an action hero. And I don't really like Batman. I do kind of like Bruce Wayne when he's flirting with Selina Kyle, but I don't like Batman here. I don't need Batman here. And fortunately, he's not in this very much. So if you can go with that very strange conceit that a Batman movie doesn't need or use Batman very well, I think that there is some nice subversive humor I think it works as a dark comedy. If you like Heathers, recommend. If you like superhero movies, probably not a recommend. But for me, this delivers the kind of movie that as an adult, I like to see. So I'm going to give it a recommend. I like Heathers. I've rewatched it recently. Not as good as it was when I was in high school. Still a very good movie, though. A lot of funny humor. But you know what it did that this film didn't? Was it was focused. It was making fun of pretty much one thing and one thing only, and that's high school angst. This movie, as Stuart has recounted, I turned on it at about the one hour mark. And I went out, having bought all the comics, bought all the toys, threw away the toys, gave away the comics, never looked back. To this day, with the exception of research for the Aliens vs. Predator series, I've never read a Batman comic. That was only Batman vs. Predator. (laughs) Watching this movie this time, and I do think this very well may be the first time since that original theatrical viewing, it's nowhere near as bad as my memory told me. It really has some things going for it that work very well. I think Keaton, what little he has to do, he does even better than the last one. Pfeiffer? Really, really good in this. DeVito, he has his moments. Christopher Walken, I just was not impressed with in this one. But I do think there's things here to like. I can see why you might. I can see even why you'd recommend it, Stuart. But the problem for me is, even if you take away expectations of a superhero film being an action film, what you still end up here is just a muddled mess. It's just close to incoherent. I think that it was too scattershot. I think that there were some half-assed attempts going on here. People feeling a little overconfident, perhaps. But this, for me, is a not recommend. I can't recommend anybody watch this. And for me, this is the beginning of the downfall of Burton. I can't think of a movie after this Burton made that I liked. Actually, my favorite one is Ed Wood, which was his next film. Didn't really care for Ed Wood. Mars Attacks was the moment I pretty much gave up. Much like I dragged you to Batman Returns, you dragged me to Sleepy Hollow. And then Planet of the Apes. I I haven't seen a Burton film since Planet of the Apes. Although, if it stays in theaters long enough, maybe I'll still get a chance to go see Dark Shadows. Yeah, it's out now. I mean, I'm with you. I think Tim Burton got swallowed by his budgets. The corporations won. He wanted to make them satirical targets early on, but this was the last time I really felt like they were sharp. And yeah, he kind of now makes crap like Disney's Alice in Wonderland. I mean, he has become what he wanted to hate. 
And he doesn't necessarily like this film much either. He doesn't have a whole lot of kind things to say. You say this is the movie he wanted to make. He says the same thing. By the same token, he says that based off his experience for this, he'll never do a sequel again. And based off the reaction to this, Warner didn't want him back. He went to Warner and was like, all right, I'm ready for Batman 3. Here's my ideas. And their response was, Tim, wouldn't you rather go make another small little movie? <laughs> I know I would. I liked both of his versions of Batman. It's very odd that I'm the only one that has recommended all three in the series so far. I'm shocked but... Stewart's three for three on his, <laughs> on his superhero retrospective. I, I, it's, it's a very different world. Maybe it's the DC thing. I don't know. but Or maybe Batman is just a character that I more closely go with. Although I don't think so, because it's not Batman that I've liked in these last two. But as much as I've appreciated what Burton has brought to it, I'd like for someone else to, to do it. I'd like for it to get a makeover, although I'm not sure I want it to have a shoe makeover. <laughs> Joel Schumacher, the former window designer, will become the director for the next installment, Batman Forever, which will have a new star two new villains, and a whole new aesthetic. Will Stewart still like Batman under a new director? Will Jacob and Arnie be happy for a reunion with the Lost Boys director? Find out on Now Playing next week. Same Bat Day, same Bat website. We've received a letter from Batman this morning. Please inform the citizens of Gotham that Gotham City has earned the rest from crime. But if the forces of evil should rise again to cast a shadow on the heart of the city, call me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing Batman Movie Retrospective Series. Well, that was very brief. Just like all the men in my life. Part of our DC Comics movie series. Fortune smiles, another day of wine and roses. In your case, beer and pizza. Ha! Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Batman movie, culminating in a weekend of release review of Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight Rises. My business, repeat customers. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, check out our archives where you can find reviews of other comic-based movies, such as Green Lantern, The Avengers, X-Men, Howard the Duck, and many more. If you gotta go, go with a smile. <laughs> you can also listen to our non-comic-based movie reviews, such as Star Trek, Terminator, Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Tron, and many others. Now that's impressive! You can set your bat phone to subscribe and get every new Now Playing Podcast. RSS subscription details are at nowplayingpodcast.com. What is it you really came here for? While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Don't talk like one of them. You're not. Even if you'd like to be. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Come on, you gruesome son of a bitch. Come to me. <laughs> the link to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Oh, you made it. I'm so thrilled. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So what are we waiting for? Let's consummate our fiendish union. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. 
It's not about what I want. It's about what's fair! You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can't get capes and cowls, yet you can buy panties, t-shirts, coffee mugs, calendars, mouse pads, and much more. Alfred, let's go shopping. Yes, sir. Now Playing's Batman Retrospective series is edited by Brock, Alex, Nick, and Arnie. They scream and they cry. Now. now Playing credit narration by Brock. I hate when people talk during the movie. Now Playing is not affiliated with Warner Brothers Pictures or DC Comics. Batman and all that DC's infinite Earths contain are the property and trademark of DC Comics, and no infringement is intended. The law doesn't apply to people like him or us. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. This is why Superman works alone. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. Gotta go! So many people to kill, so little time. Shrek pushes Kyle out of her office. Shrek pushes... Shrek pushes Kyle out. Shrek pushes Kyle out. God damn it. You're getting it right. That's the weird part. <laughs> it's it's the word his. I keep trying to say Shrek pushes Kyle out her. That's where I'm, I'm screwing up at that point. Batman, Batman and Cat... Didn't they say Catwoman helped out too? No, no. just Batman. Oh, okay. So they say Batwoman saved all the children. Batman. Like, huh? Batman. Oh, did I say... You said Batwoman. And, and they say... And she's just ready to finally focus her rage back on the man who started it all. It's kind of like if somebody really pisses you off, they f*** your girlfriend, and you go out one night and you go binge drinking and carousing and smash up a few cars because you're enraged and you don't know what else to do. Then the next morning you wake up and you're no longer drunk, but you're still pissed at that guy, and now you're going to get your revenge. Did that only happen to me? (laughs) What a... And Tim Burton has written that portion of this podcast <laughs> as it gets very dark. <laughs> yes, it's just like that. After I have my homicidal rage on alcohol, I wake up and have a different one. Okay. It's different, but the same. And so all scary. <laughs> <laughs> 91, right? That's the number, huh? Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs>